0: May God enlighten the eyes of our hearts to know the hope to which Christ has called us. Amen. You need to be seated. Anytime you hear a story about bread in the Gospels, there's a pretty good chance that the gospel writer is trying to tease out a reference to that meal at the center of the church's life and worship, the Eucharist, communion, the table of the Lord. But that's not always easy to spot because of course the eucharist can feel to many of us like a total mystery can it maybe you've done it every sunday since day dot but still you find yourself walking up to the altar thinking what on earth is this all about or maybe you're new to this weird and wacky world of church and you find what we do do every sunday a total enigma well you're not alone The great liturgical scholar Gregory Dix tried to get to the bottom of what exactly the Eucharist is all about in his classic study, The Shape of the Liturgy. He said that no matter the endless variations and ways that the Eucharist is celebrated, you can always boil it down to something at the very centre of it, something that goes all the way back to the very earliest gatherings of the Church. The Eucharist, Dix says, is at its most basic just this. Taking the bread and wine that's offered, blessing it, breaking it, and giving it out to the people. Simple as that. In technical church jargon, the offertory, the consecration, the fraction, and the distribution. No matter the variations and the diversity of ways that it's done, those four elements combined make up the shape of the Eucharist, that Christians of countless traditions and expressions celebrate every Sunday. Following Gregory Dix's lead, Biblical scholars went back to Scripture, and they discovered that this fourfold movement turns up all over the Gospels. References to the Eucharist sprinkled all throughout the story, which tells you that the Church's liturgical traditions really got there before the Bible itself. Tradition wasn't written by the Bible. The Bible was written by church tradition and sought to reflect upon and make sense of that tradition. And that's why when you read a gospel story about bread, you should think Eucharist. So, too, in today's reading, it's almost impossible to miss the shadow of the Eucharist hanging over the story once you notice it. The hungry crowds chase after Jesus. And he calls the disciples to bring the little bit of bread and fish that they have, and he takes it, blesses it before the crowds, breaks it, and gives it back to all. And the bread that's distributed turns out to be miraculously more than the offering that was brought. God takes the simple and scarce gifts brought in faith, and he makes them something more. Matthew's inviting us to see through this story to the story at the heart of the gospel itself. A story about a God who gives of God's self for a world in need. Jesus is taken, chosen from all eternity. He's blessed at his baptism. He's broken and poured out on the cross, and then in resurrection and ascension and through the life of the church, he's given as bread to the world. And 2,000 years later, we gather every week around the same table to receive the bread of heaven that was blessed and broken for us. The Eucharist is the central gathering of the church, our family dinner, if you will. Not only because here we receive Christ, but also because here we're reminded of who we are, reminded of what it means to be people for whom Christ poured out his life. We all need that reminder, don't we? We too are taken, chosen by God to be blessed, made more, and sent out to a hungry world. Anyone who bothers to get out of bed on a Sunday morning and get dressed for church while everybody else enjoys a sleep in or drives the kids to soccer practice must be seeking something of that reminder. To hear that for all the mess our lives sometimes feel like, we are beloved on God, a blessed and a given people. And just like for the disciples, if we want to be that kind of people, there's an intentionality that's necessary to that life. The disciples don't have much to bring. The miracle is God's, not theirs. And they're not asked to do more than they're capable of doing, but they are asked to show up, to bring what they have. And so if we would be reminded what it means to be God's people, we have to open our hands to receive and be willing to give. It requires intention. And at times it may even require struggle. Just like the feeding of the five thousand. Jacob's story that we read a moment ago is a favorite in the church too. I assume it's a favorite because all of us at one time or another know what it is to fight with God, don't we? We can relate to Jacob. But this isn't really a story about Jacob struggling with God. So much as it's a story about Jacob struggling with himself, with his own identity. Jacob's whole life has been about that. Since the day he was born, he's lied and cheated and manipulated his way to the good life, trying to force God's hand. At the base of it, Jacob is a man who doesn't know who he is and who's always trying to be someone else. And here we find him running from his brother Esau, who has it out for him because Jacob stole his birthright, a kind of ancient world identity theft. Jacob, never the most chivalrous guy, sends his wives and maids and children ahead of him, and he stays behind and hides. And while he's there by the river, a man comes along and gets into a fight. It's not clear who started the fight, but probably Jacob, because for one thing, he has a history of that kind of thing. And for another, the fight has something to do with him needing a blessing. Why does he want a blessing so badly? And what exactly is a blessing? It's hard to read through the ancient cultural resonances sometimes. But Jacob's blessing is not anything trite or pious like you might think. He's not busting dozers because the guy didn't say bless you after he sneezed. What he's really doing is seeking affirmation. He's fighting for a name, for an identity. And fighting as if his life depends on it because in a way it does. And he gets it. The stranger gives him a new name. He says, you are one who struggles with God and prevails, fights with God. That's Jacob's new name, his new identity. Not the best name, but at least it's his name. And so Jacob gets his blessing, but the cost of it is that he's wounded. As he walks on to face his brother, he does it with a limp. A limp will possess the rest of his life. It's Jacob struggling with God. The woundedness that his encounter with the divine leaves him with, that his blessing is named after. He takes up his limping self and he walks forward. That is what scripture means when it talks about blessing. A blessing means God's deep affirmation of our very being. It means God taking what little we are and affirming it with all God's self, but also making it something more. Like the bread that's blessed at the table. It's bread, but by grace it becomes more than that. And as for Jacob, as for the bread that is held up, that blessing may sometimes take place through breaking. This movement of brokenness and blessing is a familiar one in the biblical story. And it's a familiar one for us too. Everyone knows what it is to struggle with life and with God and with oneself and to want to know that there's some blessed purpose in that struggle surely that's what we seek at some level at least when we bring ourselves again to the table week after week to gather up our broken pieces to god and to believe that god is able to make something more of them. there's a beautiful moment in many of the eucharists we do in which the priest as they prepare to give out communion holds up the bread and wine and says behold what you are and we each of us responds in faith may we become what we receive. It's a desperate and a hopeful prayer. We live our way to this table every week, not just to share in the Eucharist, but to become Eucharist, to remind ourselves as regularly as we need to, that we are beloved of God, taken, blessed, broken, and given out to the world. Thanks be to God.